As you probably are aware, every good story creates tension in the reader and builds towards the resolution of a conflict or mystery. And in our year-long journey through the storyline of the Bible, we come to that inexplicable place where the hero of the story appears to have died. And if this were the case, and if this were it ended, it would end in a big thud, wouldn't it? On a Friday, approximately 27 AD, during the time of the Passover celebration in Jerusalem, the unimaginable occurred. The Lord of glory was hung on a tree. God's ultimate gift to humanity was rejected. The Apostle John put it this way, he came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. And what could possibly account for this unthinkable event? Last Sunday, Pastor Meyer vividly displayed the corrupted human heart as full of envy and greed, despair, cruelty, cynicism, but especially pride. Pride is the root of all sin that is an anti-God, full of self, I'm the center of all things, it's all about me, state of mind. And Jesus was a threat to his enemies as well as to our autonomy and independence because he is the only one Lord. And when he threatens us and our lordship, he was rejected. And the cross is simply the ugliness of the human heart put on public display. As if God was saying, let me show you dramatically what we are capable of. That's it. But let me also show you the great love with which he has loved us. But the story didn't end when the hero died. God had a deeper wisdom, or as C.S. Lewis puts it in the first of his Narnia Chronicles, a deeper magic. And the Apostle Paul puts it this way. We read in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. No, we speak of God's secret wisdom, a wisdom that has been hidden, that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. You see, Satan thought he pulled the ultimate coup. He had put God to death, <laughs> that he was going to reign over the universe. But God had a trump card that Satan didn't understand. His knowledge was limited. And he pulled that trump card because three days after that black, good Friday, God raised Jesus bodily from the tomb. The hero lives. Without the resurrection, this would have been a badly told story that no publisher would have taken on. Without the resurrection, Jesus would have been just another victim of Roman cruelty, not much different than the two thieves crucified with him. Without the resurrection, Jesus would have been, at best, a passing reference by some arcane first century historian. Without the resurrection, as Paul says, we would still be in our sin. Without the resurrection, we would not have any demonstrable evidence that Jesus was the God-man. But more personally... Without the resurrection, we would have no hope. And it's 
on this hope that I want us to dwell this morning. The resurrection of Jesus is ultimately very personal and individual. The hope of the resurrection moves us beyond the intellectual proofs for the resurrection to personal confidence in the resurrection. It is hope that we have in the face of death. That seems to me appropriate on this Memorial Day weekend that we focus on this great enemy that we all must face personally and whose face we have stared into with the loss of loved ones that we care for deeply. C.S. Lewis has said that there are only three choices when it comes to facing death. We can desire it, we can fear it, or we can ignore it. Our culture is good at the latter one, isn't it? Ignoring it. Max Lucado calls death the big bad bully on the block. He catches you in the alley. He taunts you in the playground. He badgers you on the way home. You too will die someday, says the bully. But the resurrection says that this bully really is a 98-pound weakling just dressed up in a Charles, Al- Al- Charles Atlas outfit. So I want us to look at how the Apostle Paul offered a pastoral word to the church in Thessalonica this morning. This resurrection truth becomes applied very personally to our lives to give us hope. So this morning we're going to turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, uh, verses 13 through 18, and read responsively as is our custom. I'll start with the odd number of verses and you pick up the even number. And note that Paul concludes this with the intent of the text. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. These words are meant to be encouraging. Verse 13. Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord uh, in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Before we get to the message of hope, I want to acknowledge appreciation for the realism that Paul brings uh, along with the message of hope. I'm struck by the phrase, we do not want you to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. Paul does acknowledge <laughs> that there will be grief when we lose someone. A grief with hope, certainly, but we still will grieve. There is a sense of interruption that occurs in our life. I oftentimes think within the Christian community that we have kind of this myth that we carry on that when someone dies who we know has gone to a better place, we think it's sort of not right for us to grieve. We think, well, we should be just happy for that person and the state that they are in. And I oftentimes hear at funerals, people say things like, 
boy, they're being so strong. As if not grieving is a good thing. And we sort of reinforce that in people's lives. A kind of a manufactured joy. Paul doesn't say here, don't grieve. He says, we grieve with hope. So I want to give people permission this morning when you have lost somebody that you love dearly to, to grieve deeply and even, and even to be angry at what has taken place. See, death is an enemy. Sure, a defeated enemy, but also the sign that things are not the way they are supposed to be. And I think Jesus is our model here for how he handled death when it came into his own life. In John chapter 11, we know the story of the raising of Lazarus. Jesus had become very close to a family, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. They lived in Bethany, just a short distance away from Jerusalem. And when Jesus was with his disciples, he catched word that Lazarus is very ill and is invited to come. But by the time he gets to Bethany, Lazarus has been in the tomb for four days. Scripture says that uh, Martha hears that Jesus has arrived and runs to the edge of the village and, and says, Jesus, if you just had gotten here a little bit earlier, you could have saved me from all of this grief. And then Mary comes as well, and she's weeping and crying. And so we read in verse 33 of John 11, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. And then that Scripture verse that all of us have memorized Jesus wept. And then Scripture goes on to say, and then the Jews said, see how he loved him. Now we can think that all that Jesus is feeling here is a sense of loss over the deaths of Lazarus. He's seeing the weeping of Mary and Martha, and so he identifies with their loss as well. But there's more going on here than that. In verse 38, there's a phrase that's repeated as Jesus moves towards the tomb to raise Lazarus. Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. Deeply moved, it says here. Now, that does not at all capture the significance of the word that is used here in the Greek language to describe Jesus' emotions. This is the same word that's used to describe a Greek stallion ready to prepare for battle. And it's the image of a well-trained horse that is about ready to charge that rears up on its hind legs, paws the air, muscles rippling, and gets ready to move in the battle. That's what deeply moved <laughs> means. Or John Calvin has said that Jesus here is a champion ready for conflict. So a more literal translation would be Jesus snorting in spirit <laughs> came to the tomb. This is not the way it's supposed to be, Jesus is saying. And so when Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth, he's hurling himself into the teeth of all the pain, suffering, interruption, and sorrow death represents. And as much as we believe and relish the resurrection victory that was held over death, it's also a reminder that this world of death is the result of sin. I remember quite clearly that moment when I first felt my own angry reaction towards death. I was pastoring a small church in Burbank, California. I was about 30 years old at the time. We had a woman in our congregation by the name of Mildred who I had come to love very dearly. She was about 80 years old. I, I think she was a, a Renaissance woman. <laughs> she was an attorney 
uh, who was a female attorney long before it was her time. Well-read, art collector, well-traveled, always had something witty to say about a sermon that I would preach. And then one Sunday morning prior to worship, I was still at home getting ready to go down to the church. I got a phone call, and it was Mildred's brother on the other end of the line. And the brother said that Mildred had been found dead in her home. And it probably, she'd probably been dead a couple of days. And I remember hanging up that phone, and all of a sudden there was this involuntary eruption of motion that came out of me, and I cannot repeat the words that I spoke at that moment. I was angry over what had happened. And in retrospect, have come to believe that that's an appropriate response to the interruption in life. Death is an awful interruption. Grief and even anger is an appropriate response. But as Paul says here, grief tempered with hope. We do not grieve as others do who have no hope. And it's that hope now that I want to spend the rest of my time looking with you at this morning in relationship to death. Three things that come from this text that I think give us hope. We have hope because death is a transition to a whole new order of life. <clears throat> Paul compares sleep here, did you notice? Compares death, did you notice, to sleep in our text. Three times Paul uses the euphemism of fall asleep as a description of death. Verse 13, you can see on the, on the screen. We do not want you to be ignorant about those who, what, fall asleep. Verse 14, we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Verse 15, those who are still alive will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. This is Paul's image of what death is like. Now, what's the value of sleep? We fall into bed spent after a day's activity, tired. We sleep and we wake up rejuvenated, hopefully, <laughs> with greater vitality, ready to take on the tasks of the day. And I think that's what Paul's talking about here, that death is like sleep in the sense that we will wake up in the presence of God, renewed and rejuvenated, alive. But also I think Paul is addressing that age-old question of, now, when we die, do we go immediately to be in the presence of God? But it also says here that the resurrection is still in the future, and, and we will not be resurrected from the dead until sometime in the future when Christ comes back again. How are we going to understand this? When we die, do we directly go into the presence of God? Or is there some time delay here that waits until Christ returns? I think that's perhaps why the image of sleep was being used here. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Immediacy. But Christ hasn't come back again yet. How are we to understand this? Well, sleep <laughs> uh, covers that passage of time. We immediately move into eternity, so we're out of this time-boundness uh, that we are in. Maybe another image uh, helps us. Most of us have probably had some kind of surgery at some time in our life, and we went under anesthesia, right? And then you woke up from the surgery as if what? No time has passed. And the first thing you ask is, has the surgery been done yet? <laughs> because it feels like 
there has been no time. I think that's what we will experience. We will experience as if no time has been passed, though from a human perspective, there may be a time delay. Catherine Marshall tells a story that captures this imagery of rejuvenating power of sleep. Young boy, about 12 years old, by the name of Kenneth, suffered from an incurable illness. And as Kenneth was getting weaker and weaker, he sensed that uh, his day of death was drawing close. And so one day out of the blue, he asked his mom, Mom, what's it like to die? Mom, will it hurt? Well, frankly, the mother wasn't prepared for the question. And she found herself choking up with emotion, and so not wanting Kenneth to see that emotion, she dismissed herself to another room, gathered herself together, and then she came back with a wonderful answer. Kenneth, do you remember when you were younger, you were used to play so hard that you would be too tired to undress yourself and just fall asleep in my bed? Then in the morning, you would awake to find yourself in your own bed in your own room? Well, your father had come with his strong arms and carried you there. Well, death is like that. You will wake up to find yourself in your own room where you belong because Jesus cared and carried you with his strong arms. That leads us to the next promise that we see in our text. We have hope because death has a destination. And the destination is not so much a place but a person. Paul says in verse 14, we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep. With Jesus, those who have fallen asleep. Jesus is the destination. And Jesus himself said this. I think the the most comforting words that are ever spoken came from Jesus' own lips in John 14, verses two and three. In my Father's house are many rooms If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back to take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. Jesus is saying, I'm gone ahead to prepare the way for eternity. In my Father's house are many rooms. Jesus says, why did he say that? Could it be that when Jesus was born and his parents Mary and Joseph took him to Bethlehem. They found no room in the inn. But when we come, don't worry, there's not going to be any no vacancy signs. The room has been prepared for you. If it were not so, I would have told you. Jesus is saying, I'm not just whistling in the wind here. (laughs) This is not just wishful thinking. You can count on my reputation. If I go and prepare a place for you, Jesus says, I will come again. I go and prepare a place. I'm going ahead of you. It's the image here of a forerunner in front of the main main troops who are reconnaissance troops are clearing the way, clearing the danger so that the main body of troops can come on ahead. Jesus said, I'm going ahead of you and taking care of all that danger. I'm defeating death so that you can come after me. And then these final words. If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back, take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. Death has probably got to be the loneliest experience we will ever have. But what a comforting thought 
to know that the face that we will see on the other side of death is the face of Jesus. And then he says, I will be there and I will escort you to that place that I prepared for you and then I'm going to be your companion forever in that place. I got it all covered, he says. Wow. Now those are words of hope. Let me tell you a story that illustrates that. John Todd was born in Rutland, Vermont in 1800. By the age of six, both of his parents had died. John was adopted by his aunt who gave him a wonderful life. John, for a career, became a pastor. At the age of 41, John received a letter from his aunt who was desperately ill and in great, great distress over what death would be like. And here is the letter that John wrote in reply. It is now 35 years since I, a little boy of six, was left quite alone in the world. You sent me word that you would give me a home and be a kind of mother to me. I have never forgotten the day that I made the journey of 10 miles to your home. I well remember my tears and my anxiety as perched high on your horse and clinging tight to your servant Caesar, I rode off to my new home. Night fell before we finished the journey as it grew dark. I became lonely and afraid. I asked Caesar anxiously, do you think she'll go to bed before I get there? Oh no, he said assuringly. She'll stay up for you, and when we get out of these here woods, you'll see her candle shining in the window. I remember you waiting at the door, that you put your arms close about me and that you lifted me. Big fire burning on the hearth, a hot supper waiting for me on the stove. After supper, you took me to my new room. You heard me say my prayers, and then you sat there beside my bed until I fell asleep. You probably realize why I'm recalling all this to your memory. Someday soon, God will send for you to take you to a new home. Don't fear the summons, the strange journey. God can be trusted to do as much for you as you were kind enough to do for me. At the end of the road, you will find love and a welcome waiting. I shall watch you and pray for you until you are out of sight, and then wait for the day when I shall make the journey myself and find you waiting at the end of the road to greet me. And that leads me to the third element of hope this morning. We have hope that we await the greatest reunion that we can ever imagine. Can you imagine seeing those people that you love and the rejoicing that there will be? There's not too many places in Scripture where this allusion to reunion is actually a reality. But it is in our text here this morning. And I love the way Eugene Peterson has captured it in his translation, The Message. Follow along as I read. And then this. We can tell you with complete confidence, we have the master's word on it. When the master comes again to get us, those of us who are still alive will not get a jump on the dead and leave them behind. In actual fact, they'll be ahead of us. The master himself will give the command, archangel thunder, God's trumpet blast. He'll come down from heaven and the dead in Christ will rise. They'll go first. And then the rest of us who are still alive at the time will be caught up with them in the clouds to meet the master. Oh, we'll be walking on air. And then there will be one huge family reunion with the master. So reassure one another 
with these words. Paul paints a wonderful picture here, doesn't it, of the Lord's descent that we call the second coming of Christ. And when he descends, there will be a transformation. Everybody will know that this has happened. Remember when in the first coming of Christ, when Jesus slipped onto this planet quietly, no fanfare, no parades, no trumpets. But when he comes again, oh, make no mistake about it, we'll all know that that is happening. Trumpet sound. A voice like a trumpet, a word of command, an archangel's voice. What all of that sounds like, it will be arresting. And the trumpet will sound signaling that the secular world is, is what has happened in Revelation chapter eleven fifteen. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And at that moment, the scripture says, the dead in Christ will will rise. They will materialize. The resurrection bodies will be given to those who have died. And then those of us, if we're still alive at the time of Christ's coming, will also be translated into having imperishable bodies that will last forever. Paul puts it this way, that we will be changed in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. And we will gather to meet the Lord in the air, around the clouds, the clouds always representing the shining glory of God in Scripture. And then as Peterson puts it, oh, we'll be walking on air. And then there will be one huge family reunion with the Master. Sheldon Van Alken was a student of the great British professor and a Christian apologist, C.S. Lewis, in the early 1950s at Oxford University. He recounts in his book, A Severe Mercy, the story of his last meeting with his mentor before he left Oxford to come back to the United States. And at their last parting lunch, they wondered and laughed together about the nature of life after death. And as they stood out in front of the pub on a very busy street, they shook hands, and C.S. Lewis said to his friend Sheldon, I shan't say goodbye. We'll meet again. And then Lewis plunged into the traffic to go across to the other side of the street with the roaring of the, of the noise of the automobiles. And when he got to the other side, he knew his friend Sheldon would still be waiting to look at him. And so he looked back across the cars and bellowed out so that all could hear, besides, Christians never say goodbye. Now, we do not grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. Oh, we do experiencing the, experience the wrenching loss, maybe even anger that comes at the time of death because we know that death is a result of sin. We also know that that death has been defeated. The grave could not hold Jesus. He faced down that big bully and defeated death as our final enemy. So in Christ, we have the hope that the sleep of death is just a passageway to the ultimate rejuvenation. We have hope that on the other side of death that the first face we will see will be Jesus' face. And finally, we await that biggest family reunion ever thrown where the hugs and the kisses will never stop. Can't you see it? The glee on people's faces as we point to one another and said, how did you get in here? <laughs> Weren't expecting you. <laughs> and they said back to us, <laughs> This morning, let us come before our God in prayer.
and just thank him for covering all the bases for us. Let's bow together. Father God, we thank you for Jesus. His willingness to go to the cross to both expose the evil of our hearts as well as to cover it with mercy. To burst forth from the tomb having defeated death and left the guilt of our sin paid for and buried. Having gone before us and prepared a place for us, this is a story that we could never have made up. And it's because of that we know it to be true. Give us confidence in our own hearts, we pray. In his name, amen.